Well, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 4, and for the last time, we are going to turn to Paul's letter that we've been studying for about a year now. We've moved through it rather quickly and seen big, big picture points, and then we've hunkered down on some certain aspects that we wanted to really narrow in on. But this morning we come to Paul's final words, the last words that he writes to this church in Philippi. In chapter 4, verse 20, we find his last words to this church. Last words are important, whether they are last words from a a mouth that is about to enter into eternity or whether they are last words in a book or a novel or a movie. Last words always tell something, mean something, and we should do well to listen to them. Some of the most famous last words of famous people, Frank Sinatra said at the very end of his life, as he was about to pass into eternity, said, I'm losing it. I guess that's a good explanation of what death looks like. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who wrote the Sherlock Holmes story, died at the age of 71 in a garden. And he turned to his wife and his last words were, Oh dear, you are wonderful. That's very sweet. Sir Isaac Newton, when he died on his deathbed, he said this, I don't know what I may seem to the world, but as to myself, I seem to have been only like a boy playing on the seashore and diverting myself now and then in finding a smoother pebble or a prettier shell than the ordinary while the great ocean of truth lay all undiscovered before me. Now, when I read that, I thought, first of all, if he is a, an ordinary little boy playing on the seashore, what does that make me? Um, as Sir Isaac Newton, one of the smartest, most brilliant minds, says, oh, I was nothing. Um, that makes me really nothing. And then I thought, boy, I want to have as much coherence as he had at the end of his life to be able to say those words. Those are his last words. These are not Paul's last words before he died. We don't have those recorded for us. If we were to turn to what we do have recorded for us as the closest thing to his last words before he died, we would turn to 2 Timothy at the end of 2 Timothy because that was the last letter that Paul wrote before he was beheaded for Christ. So this is the last words, not of his life, but of a letter. The last words of his letter written to share his heart, and I believe he does so with a very specific purpose in mind. So as I was was thinking about last words in a letter or a book, two of my favorite endings, last words in books, are from Charlotte's Web and A Tale of Two Cities. Charlotte's Web, the last words, the last line of that book go as follows. It is not often that someone comes along who is a true friend and a good writer. And Charlotte was both. I love the way that book ends. A Tale of Two Cities ends this way. And you know it. It is a far, far better thing that I do than I've ever done. It is a far, far better rest that I go to than I have ever known. What is the purpose of Paul's final words in Philippians chapter 4? I believe that they lay out a summary statement of the priority of why he is living life. And he would give to the church in Philippi as a benediction, as a greeting, uh, a, a doxology, as the end of this letter. He would say to them, these are my priorities. Make these your priorities. And we've seen them all throughout the book of Philippians. But we'll see them one last time as we conclude our series through this amazing little letter. Let's read it together. Philippians chapter 4 verse 20. Now, to our God and Father, be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Jesus Christ. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. And the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. And as he concludes this letter, I believe he lays out for us three of the priorities of his life. Three priorities that shaped his life that should shape ours as well. Priority number one, live to the glory of God. Live to the glory 
of God. He begins in this ending, in this conclusion, by saying, Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Literally, to the ages of all of the ages, forever and ever. There is never a moment that God should not receive the glory. And so I believe Paul would say his priority in his life is to live for the glory of God. When he says now, he's connecting back to what has been said, and specifically that God is going to provide for every single need, supply every single need that you have in the riches of Christ Jesus in heaven. He is going to provide for your need. And so he's saying, let God receive the glory for that provision. But he's saying even more than that, a transition to the end. Now, as we wrap up everything that has been discussed, God receives all of the glory for it. If we live in sanctification, we do not receive the glory for it. If we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, we don't get the glory for it. God gets the glory. So everything that has been said, Paul says, make sure you remember everything that has been said that you live out must be done to God's glory and not to your own. I love how he says, to our God and our Father. You need to keep those two words in tension. Our God, our King, our Sovereign, the Creator of the universe, the Maker of the galaxies, the One who holds our lives in His hand and could destroy them in an instant just by not giving us the breath that we need to survive. He is our God and we should fear him as such. He is the one who controls everything, but he is also our father. He has adopted us. He has made us his own. He takes care of us as his children. He is our God. He is our father. And we need to remember both of those aspects together. Fear him for who he is and run to him for comfort for who he is. And as you mix those two together, you have the most amazing person to run to for encouragement for comfort for counsel he is our god and he is our father and because of who he is both god sovereign creator king lord and father good father to his children because of who he is he deserves the glory forever why is bringing glory to god such a constant theme in scripture Why does Paul say that he deserves all the glory and we don't get an ounce of it? Why is glory being given to God a priority of Paul's life? Even as we think of our God and Father, I I think of the Lord's Prayer. Um, Our Father who are in heaven, our, our God, he's in heaven, he's king, and he's our Father. And what is the ultimate priority that we're praying for? Hallowed be your name, glorified, honored, revered. Your name is to be hallowed and glorified. Why? Why is that the theme of the scriptures, that God would receive the glory? Sometimes we read statements like in Isaiah 42, verse 8, where God says, I will not give my glory to another. It just sounds like an, an angry grandma, right? I will not give my glory to another. I should be loved and cared for and no one else should take my place. Sometimes I think when we go to God and we read those words, we read them kind of saying, really, are you sure, God? Is that the way to say that? Because if any of us said that, that would not be right. That would not be true and that would not be holy and righteous. Why is it okay for God to demand that we receive glory? And why is it in our best interest that he does that? This is really a sermon for another time. But this is something that we need to wrestle with. This is something that Paul prays for. Paul asked God to open our eyes. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 23, he says, look at who God is. Look at all that he's done. And I want your eyes to be open. Uh, Brian Nix alluded to that in his prayer today. Look at who God is and let your spiritual eyes be enlightened and open so you can behold and comprehend how great he is. I want you to give him glory, and he deserves all of it, and that is in your best interests. Why? Why can he command us to glorify him? Well, number one, because he's creator. The creature has to do what the creator tells them to do. Um, God is not made in our image. We are made in his image, and so therefore we must do what he tells us to do. So he has all right just to say, give me glory, and that's it. He has all right to do that. But he goes so much further than that. He has designed every human soul 
to be satisfied by nothing but the glory of God. Sometimes you hear it in the phrase of, you know, the God-shaped hole in your heart. The idea behind that is that you and I were made for the purpose of being satisfied by God and by his glory. So much so that when we try to find our satisfaction in anything but that, we will be let down. That's idolatry. Trying to find our satisfaction in anything but God brings us to a place of being let down because finite things cannot satisfy infinite souls. And so God lovingly says, you must glorify me. And in doing so, as you bring me glory, which I deserve, you are most satisfied. We see this in John 11. Remember, Lazarus has died And before he dies, Mary and Martha say, please come, he's sick and you can heal him. There's an amazing verse in John 11 that says, now Jesus loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And because of his love for them, he stayed back, did not go, did not heal Lazarus and let him die. Why? Which would bring greater glory to God? Raising Lazarus from the dead? Or just healing him of his affliction. Jesus knew, oh, the greatest good for Mary, for Martha, and for Lazarus is to behold the greatest amount of glory possible. And the greatest amount of glory possible to be had in this situation is not healing Lazarus. It's raising him from the dead. So I will let him die because I love these people. I will let him die so that the glory of God would be seen in an even greater way. Because the greatest good for us is seen and savoring the glory of God. Turn to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul knew this. Paul knew it is God's glory that changes us. God doesn't just deserve glory because he is our creator, because he is our sustainer, because he is good and he is our king. He has graciously given us the command to glorify him because that is what changes us. That's what conforms us into the image of God. When you see something that you don't like in yourself, when you rightfully see, I have sin in my life and I want to change that, where's the first place that we typically run to change that? We become so pragmatic that we go to programs or accountability. Okay, I need to change this. Give me six steps. Give me four steps. Give me a verse to memorize and I'll be done. Paul knows that's not where you go first. You have to work. And accountability and programs are fine, but that's not where you go first. Because that's not what changes you. That will just modify your behavior. It is God's glory that changes us. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. We all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. So we're beholding God's glory. And because of that, we are being transformed into the same image. Into the image of God. Into the image of Christ. From glory to to glory. So there's degrees in this, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Paul says, you want to be changed? Don't go to the law. The whole point of chapter 3 is, don't go to the law and behold the law and try to be changed by the law. Go to Christ. Behold the glory of Jesus Christ. Behold the glory of God in the face of Christ. Chapter 4, as you see the grace that is found in Jesus Christ, it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And that's what changes us as we behold glory. And it's not in an instant. It's from glory to glory. There's degrees of this. But beholding God's glory is the first step in transformation. That is what does the transforming effect. So you say, well, how are you transformed by beholding glory? Where do you behold the glory of God? In the scriptures, we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ every time we read of his character of our fallen nature, of how amazing he is and gracious he is to sinners, wretched souls like you and me. We must behold the glory of God if we are to be changed. That's why Paul, practically in every letter that he writes, starts by saying, here's who God is, and in light of that, here's how you must change. Ephesians chapter 1 through 3, here's who God is and all that he has done. Now because of the indicatives of who you are in Christ, Now you can change, chapter 4 through 6. Now the commands are given to you. Now there's a program. Now there's accountability. Now you must live. But don't ever try and change before you behold the glory of God. 
Look at his grace. Look at his love. Look at his mercy. Look at his holiness. See and savor Jesus Christ. And in doing so, you will be transformed. Paul knows that. And that's why he says in Philippians chapter 4, God is the one alone who should get all the glory. We don't get it. If we start to take glory from God, remember what happened to King Herod when he tried to take glory from God, when everybody said, oh, here's the glory of a, of a God and not a man. He is a God and not a man. And God struck him down and he died by worms eating his body. It specifically says why that happened in the book of Acts. It, it says it happened because he was attempting to take glory from God that was due God's name, not his So Paul says, my priority is to glorify God, and you should too, to our God. It's not just my job to glorify God. You glorify God as well and give him the glory forever and ever. That's priority number one. Priority number two is we must live to edify the saints and make disciples. We must live to edify the saints and make disciples. Not only should we live to the glory of God, one of the ways that we do that is by edifying the saints and making disciples. This is found in verses 21 through 22. Paul says, greet every saint. He's going to say those two words, greet and saint twice. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. There's greet again. And then the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. So twice we see saint, three times we see greet. What is a saint? I think that the Catholic church has changed our perspective we kind of when we hear saint we kind of think in a catholic mindset biblically what is a saint Um, one author says it this way a saint is anyone who has come to saving faith in the lord jesus christ it's a believer a saint is a believer one who has been set apart in fact saint is the apostle paul's favorite term for christians appearing 40 times in his epistles He addressed all the believers in Philippi as saints in the opening verses and the closing verses. He even addressed the members of the Corinthian church, the most troubled, sin-plagued church in the New Testament, as, quote, those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, 1 Corinthians 1, 2. A believer in Jesus Christ, a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, is a saint. So, therefore, concluding this quote, a saint is not a superhero of the faith. A saint is anyone who has eternal life in Christ and from whom the light of Christ shines. You are saints if you know Jesus Christ. And so Paul says, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. Greet every saint in Philippi in Christ Jesus. Epaphroditus is taking this letter to the church. The church opens it, reads it, and Paul says, I want you to greet every single believer here in the name of Jesus Christ. What does it mean to greet? We think of just handshake, right? Greet, handshake. The word actually means to embrace. So it's not just, hi, how are you? It's a loving, whether it's a hug, whether it's taking care of somebody's needs. It's so much more than just a simple handshake. It's a warm and loving embrace. And I love how Paul says this. He says, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. He could have said, and he says this elsewhere in other letters, greet all the saints. But he says, greet every saint. Why does he say that? Because he's talking about every specific individual saint that's there. He's not just collectively saying, hey, all umbrella group, um, just go around and give hugs and handshakes and just say hello and embrace each other. What did this church struggle with? What was basically the reason why Paul was writing? He heard that they had disunity And so he says, go around to every single individual. There's no one that's left out, whether you like them or not, greet them. Every individual must be unified around Jesus Christ. Greet them in Christ Jesus. That is your common ground. So maybe you disagree about the color of the carpets. Who cares? Embrace them in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And do it with every single believer. Every single one. And he also says this, I believe he does this as well, to try and bring unity to the situation. Maybe there was disunity. Again, we we don't know why those two ladies were bickering. Paul didn't give the reason why. We know it wasn't theological. We know it wasn't doctrinal. We don't know why they were bickering or what they were bickering about. 
But one of the things that Paul does here, maybe they were bickering about status. Maybe they were bickering about, I lead a bigger Bible study in our church than you do. Maybe they were fighting about how great they were and there was partiality being shown. I'm a better Christian than you are. I think Paul attempts to squash that instantly by saying this, the brethren who are with me greet you. The saints who are with me as well, the the believers who are with me. So you believers greet each other and I have believers with me too and, and they greet you as well. Who are the believers that Paul is mentioning? Well, Timothy, for one, Epaphroditus, maybe Tychicus, Maybe Philemon, based on all different verses in Scripture. Maybe Aristarchus, another longtime companion of the Apostle, that were all together in Rome at various times, and he met with them. He knew that they were there. These are Hall of Fame of Faith believers, and Paul says they're just brothers like you and me. No partiality. Knock them down. They're not to be crazy esteemed or idolized in your mind. You are saints, they are saints, and we're all the same under the blood of Jesus Christ. Edify the saints. Live to edify the saints. When we show up at church together, that should be the priority of our lives as it was for Paul. Walk through these doors asking yourself, how can I edify Ben? How can I edify Tim? How can I reach out to Ed and meet a need that he might have? How can I edify the saints and encourage them in Jesus Christ? But Paul's priority doesn't just stop there with edifying believers. He says, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. So I have brothers that are with me and all the saints that are with me are greeting you as well, especially those of Caesar's household. This is why I say we should live not only to edify the saints, but make disciples who was in caesar's household non-believers that hated the message of the gospel that hated jesus christ and now they are saints in caesar's household they have bowed the knee to jesus christ as lord it's as if paul is saying to this church look i'm sitting in prison in rome i am possibly about to be beheaded by nero and this is what i want you to know as i conclude this letter God infiltrated me into the center of imperial power and I am plundering his house. He thinks that he's in control. Nero's not in control. In fact, Nero is so much out of control that my king, King Jesus, is already getting his subjects even in Nero's household. While Nero is trying to destroy the gospel, the gospel is saving souls in the emperor's household. Nero isn't king. Nero isn't lord. Just as for us, President Obama isn't king. President Obama isn't lord. Our God reigns. And even if America falls apart, I guess we probably should say as America is falling apart, King Jesus is king. He always has been. He always will be. And he has told us, do not fear. I am with you. I will not forsake you. Go and make disciples. That's our job. Paul received that commission on the road to Damascus, and he obeyed. Jesus confronted him and said, you must go, and he did. I hear people often say, well, I would, I would be on fire just like Paul was if I received that kind of, you know, commission by God. Go and do this. Well, we have. Matthew 28, the Great Commission. Jesus has commissioned every single believer to go make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that God has commanded us. We have been given that commission. We just disobey it. We make excuses not to do it. Or we say, you know what? This is a pretty Christian community. This is a pretty Christian culture. This is a pretty Christian part of the world. We're okay. I just want to remind you of the need that we do have as we enter into our second year as a church and as we prepare to go out next Sunday. Listen to these statistics. There are over 1.8 million people in the San Fernando Valley alone. 
right now, less than 10% of the valley would be reached if every church building in the valley was filled to capacity for two full services every Sunday morning. Less than 10% of the valley would be reached. A lot of people asked when we were planting a church, uh, do we really need another church? Well, that statistic says we do. We need more capacity, more room to bring in more people and share the gospel faithfully. To say it another way, in order to reach every single soul in the valley, there would need to be 1,800 churches planted in the valley with 1,000 people attending each church. Not only are there far less than 1,800 churches in the valley, but also the majority of the churches in the valley are not churches that we would consider healthy, Bible-believing, expository-preaching, Christ-exalting churches. 83% of the U.S. is unchurched, or said conversely, only 17% of the United States attends church regularly, which would be on a weekly basis. 81% of churches in America are dying or plateauing. And on average, in a community, our community would be Northridge, North Hills area, 82% of the people there are unchurched or unreached. God has given us a commission to go. That's why we go. In the spirit of Jesus Christ, in the power that he brings, we go. We're going to go on Sunday to just knock on doors, say, hey, there's a church that started about a year ago. We celebrated our anniversary. We don't know if you've heard about us. We wanted to invite you to church. We want to know if there's needs that we can meet. We want to know if there's questions that you have about God or the Bible or about anything. We want to be able to answer those according to scriptures. And we want to share the good news of Jesus with you. And we know that in sharing the gospel biblically, there's power. There's power to save. Paul knows that, and that's why as he is chained to a Roman guard, he's preaching the gospel. He's preaching loudly. He's preaching so that not only the soldier can hear him, he's preaching so that everybody in Caesar's household can hear him. And because of that, people are getting saved. So Paul lives not only to edify the saints, embrace, encourage, edify the saints, but also to make disciples. Even while he's chained to a Roman guard, he says, I'm not going to quit. I'm not letting up. I'm not living for myself. I'm still going to do the job of the great commission that God has given to me to make disciples. And that's what he did. And I think he encourages this church in Philippi by saying, there's no place in the world that the gospel cannot work and cannot take root. No place. If there's any place, you ask a member of the church at Philippi, where is the most difficult place for the gospel to take root and save a life? It would have said, probably the center of Rome and Nero's household. And he says, guess what? Nero's household is being plundered with the gospel. There's no stronghold that God cannot destroy with the power of the gospel. So live to glorify God. Live to edify saints, to edify believers, to encourage them in the gospel, and to make disciples. And finally, number three, Paul's priority is to live in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. To live in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 23, he says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Grace to you, he said at the beginning of this letter. Grace to you. In the form of this letter, I pray that God would open your eyes as his spirit does the work to give you grace through this word that is being given to you. And now that it has been given to you, I pray that that grace would stay with you and sustain you. So grace to you at the beginning of every letter that Paul writes. Grace to you in the form of this letter, in the form of biblical encouragement and gospel-rooted encouragement. Grace to you through this letter and grace be with you once the letter is finished may continue to stay with you in jesus christ he says it in every single letter every letter that paul writes in the new testament has the exact same formula romans chapter 1 verse 7 to all who are the beloved of god in rome called as saints grace to you and peace from god our father and the lord jesus christ and then at the end romans sixteen twenty. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. 1 Corinthians 1, 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 16, 23. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. 
2 Corinthians 2.1, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 13.14, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Galatians 1.3, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Galatians 6.18, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brethren. Amen. I could go on and on, but take my word for it. You can do it. You can do the work. Look at it. Ephesians 1, Ephesians 6, Philippians 1, Philippians 4, Colossians 1, Colossians 4, 1 Thessalonians 1, 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 Thessalonians 1, 2 Thessalonians 3, 1 Timothy 1, 1 Timothy 6, 2 Timothy 1, 2 Timothy 4, Titus 1, Titus 3, Philemon 1, Philemon 1, it's all just one chapter, verse 3 and verse 25. All of it starts, grace to you and grace be with you. Every single letter. Why? doesn't matter who he's writing to, whether it's the church in Philippi that he loves that's doing very well, doesn't really need any theological tweaking, or whether it's the church in Corinth that's falling apart, doesn't understand which way is up, which way is down. No matter what it is, who he's writing to, what the situation might be, grace to you and grace be with you. Why? Because grace is the only thing that saves us that sanctifies us, that sustains us, and that brings us to glory. Grace is all we have. The grace of Jesus Christ is all we have. Let me say it this way. What you and I do doesn't compel God to withhold his grace or to give it. What you and I do doesn't compel God to withhold or give grace. Otherwise, it wouldn't be grace, because grace is favor that's given that's undeserved. If you and I did something to earn it or deserve it, it would stop being grace. Grace, by definition, is God doing something that is not in response to anything that we do or do not do. That's why you might say, well, but he gave me grace when I believed. That's why Paul specifically says, yes, but that belief that you had in Jesus Christ, Ephesians chapter 2, was a gift given to you so that you cannot say, I earned God's grace by my faith. You can say God earned his grace to himself in his saints through the faith that he has given to them. It's not of us. That's why Paul says it's God who is glorified and not us. Therefore, Paul says, live in grace. Even in this letter, you are to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, but do it in grace. Do it knowing that what you do doesn't compel God to like you more or like you less. The encouragement of this verse and every verse that Paul ends with. Think of Paul. Think of how many people who read the New Testament and read the letters of Paul think, man, this guy is harsh. He's legalistic. He doesn't understand how to communicate with people. He's so black and white. What's going on? And he ends every single letter by saying, everything that I have just told you to do cannot be done apart from the grace of Jesus Christ. You cannot do it. Try as you might, you will succeed in your own mind, but you will fail in God's mind and God's economy. You cannot do it on your own. That's why if you seek to receive the grace that has been given to you in this letter, grace to you, if you get the grace from this letter and you close it and you say, I'm done, I got all the grace I need, you kind of fill up your spiritual gas tank with grace, as it were, and say, I'm finished, I'm ready to go, and you move away from this letter and everything that Paul or the Holy Spirit through Paul has just told you to do and how to live, and you try to do it on your own power without grace being with you as you do this, you will fail. You will fail. And that's why Paul says, look, everything I've just told you to do, remember, God is for you as you live it out. He's given you the grace to live it out. If you would rely on him, live in his strength. He is your Lord, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Surrender and submit to him. He is your master. Nero's not king. Jesus is. He is your Lord. And his grace will be with your spirit. This is why he tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, be strong in the grace that is in Jesus Christ. We looked at that a couple months ago. How can we obey that command? How can we be strong in the grace that is in Jesus Christ? The grace that is in Jesus Christ is found here 
attach yourself, abide in Christ, because apart from him you can do nothing. We saw that last week in John chapter 15. Be with God in his word, in prayer, in meditation, in memorizing scripture. One writer says it this way, God's sustaining grace comes to believers through the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the theme of this epistle being mentioned almost 40 times in its four chapters. Jesus is mentioned almost 40 times in four short chapters. Paul has described himself as a servant of Christ. He addressed the Philippians as saints in Christ. His imprisonment was for the cause of Christ. For Paul to live was Christ and death ushered him into Christ's presence. He exhorted the Philippians to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of Christ by having the attitude of Christ himself. He called for them to glory in Christ. He counted everything in his past as garbage in view of the the riches, the surpassing riches that he found in Christ. He was saved by faith in Christ. He eagerly awaited Christ's return and his sufficiency was in Christ alone. The character, worship, fellowship, joy, and resources of the saints are all bound up in Jesus Christ. Paul aptly summed up the Christian life when he wrote, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Live to glorify God. Live to bring Him glory above all things, and help others to see He is more glorious than anything you could possibly imagine. Live to edify the saints, to edify and encourage believers around you, and live to make disciples, to call them to believe the gospel and surrender their lives to Jesus as king as you have. And live in the grace of Jesus Christ as you do all of it. That's why it's our mission at CBC to magnify God, spread a passion for his glory by making disciples and shepherding them to value Jesus, his grace, and his glory above all things. That's why we do what we do here at this church. And so, as we conclude this letter, I want to let Paul have the final word. And I want to do something a little different, but not really. As we have let him speak to us and teach us, as we have gone deep into the glories of this little letter, I want to let him remind us of how to live in the grace of Jesus Christ. And I want to read this letter one last time as a fitting conclusion and exclamation point to all that we've studied. And maybe as we read, the Spirit will bring back to your remembrance things that we studied. We'll remember, oh, I remember this portion of this passage and remember this point and remember how God reminding me to live this way or change my life because of this. I want to ask the Spirit to do the work that he loves to do and glorify Jesus and his sacrifice in our minds as we read. Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and the deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now, because I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it's only right for me to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and in all discernment so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and everyone else. And that most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ, even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? 
Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Christ will, even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death, because to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. I do not know which to choose. I'm hard pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. So convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress, your joy in the faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of you, salvation, and that too from God. For to you it has been gifted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, and since there is any consolation of love, and since there is fellowship of the Spirit, and since there is affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not look out for your own personal interests, but look out for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, of a slave, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And for this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So then, my beloved, just as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and with trembling, because it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain or toil in vain. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way. Share your joy with me. But I hope in the Lord, Jesus, to send Timothy to you shortly so that I may also be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know of his proven worth, that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. Therefore, I hope to send him immediately as soon as I see how things go with me. And I trust in the Lord that I myself also will be coming shortly. But I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and ministered to my need because he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed he was sick, even to the point of death. But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. 
Therefore, I have sent him all the more eagerly so that when you see him again, you may rejoice and I may be less concerned about you. Receive him then in the Lord with all joy and hold men like him in high regard because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing again to you is no trouble to me and it's a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. I was circumcised the eighth day. I was of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. And I count them all but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Oh, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Jesus Christ. Therefore, let us, as many as us who are perfect, have this attitude. And if anything in you have a different attitude, God will reveal that to you also. However, let us keep living by the same standard to which we have attained. Brethren, join in following my example. Observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk, of whom I often told you, and now tell you, even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory, by the exertion of the power that he has, even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy, my crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, Whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want. I've learned to be content in whatever circumstance I am. I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well 
to share with me in my affliction. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit, which increases to your account. But I have received everything in full, and I have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Father, we thank you for our time in this letter. We thank you for the blessing of being able to spend about a year in this rich letter that Paul wrote to a people that he loved. I praise you that our church was able to be reminded time and time again to live as Christ, to die as gain, that our priority must be to give God glory above all things, that we must live to edify each other, and we must live to make disciples. And the only way that we can do that is in the grace of Jesus Christ. So we thank you for grace. We thank you for grace and we thank you for mercy. We thank you for how marvelous this grace truly is. And I pray that as we sing and we are reminded yet again of how amazing grace is, that we would live in that. We would live in the favor that you have given to us because of what your son has done, not because of what we have done or could ever do. Your grace is greater than anything, greater than our sin, greater than the grave. And so I pray now as we sing that you would be glorified as we rest in grace and are motivated by it to go out and live to make disciples and glorify you.